0: Yeah, suddenly people are leaning forward for the sermon. All right, I'm going to read uh, uh, Proverbs 18, verse 22. I read this as a man who believes this verse applies to me. Uh, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And on the other end of that spectrum, I'm also going to read Proverbs 21, verse 19. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Without further comment, I'm gonna pray really hard for the man who's gonna preach this sermon today. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the wonders of your creation. Thank you for the chance to worship you and hear from you. Thank you for marriage and your invention. And I pray that our time in your word today would be enjoyable and also fruitful for us as we consider you and, and how to bring a wise approach. To every element of our lives. We pray for Anthony, as he brings your word, would you open our eyes and open our ears in Christ's name. Amen. Anthony, we're behind you, brother. Thank you, Mike: Way Thank behind you. you.
1: Thank you. <laughs> uh, the fool who is brave enough to talk about marriage, huh? Well, I love the liveliness, I'll tell you that much. Marriage. Where in the world did it come from? Oh, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not doing, I'm not doing Princess Bride, no. I'm not doing the... Okay, yeah, I'm only doing this because I love you. That's it, just because I love you. Mowage, yeah, okay, 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 okay. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Oh, I love the liveliness. This is great. This is fantastic. Um, So, marriage. Where in the world did this idea come from? As we have read in the Proverbs this morning, the institution has puzzled and perplexed its practitioners for millennia. In terms of ancient rhetoric on the subject, Socrates once said, By all means, uh, marry. If you get a good wife, you will be happy. If you get a bad one, you will become a philosopher. <laughs> and probably broke, am I right? <laughs> uh, comedian Rita Redner, and John loves that I always throw these jokes in anytime I'm talking about marriage, but comedian Rita Redner says, I love being married. It's so great to find that one special person you want to annoy for the rest of your life. And I have to apologize to my wife, Beth. Uh, sorry for all the, the 20, uh, we're going on 26 years, uh, years of annoyance from me, from my, from my end. Uh, Dodge that one. Um, no, she's really cool. She's really sweet to let me be so open with you about these things. Uh, marriage it clearly is difficult, and therefore we'd be wise to consider the, the words of one will feral. Before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. (laughs) But uh, all jokes aside, as Mike read earlier in the Proverbs in 18 and 21, the idea of marriage can be a confusing subject, especially if one does not possess the wisdom when choosing a partner. Because in one proverb, you have marriage portrayed as a, a good thing, an indication that one has been blessed by God. And on the other hand, you have advice offered that a life in a barren land is preferred over being married to a contentious and angry woman. In short, marriage has the potential to be blessed or an incredible bummer. How do we distinguish between the two and how does one find a blessing and not a ball and chain how do we find a blessing and not a ball and chain well for clarity and discernment this morning we're going to look at what the canon the covenant and culture says on the subject of marriage now we begin with canon canon says that the concept Uh, The concept's origin comes to us in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. According to the biblical account, God forms and fashions the world, and out of the dust he makes Adam. As Adam flourishes in the garden, God in his infinite wisdom recognizes that it's not good for man to be alone. And therefore, God creates Eve for Adam, and by God's design, they will will live a selfless rather than a selfish existence. Two distinct personalities becoming one. It's not a ball and chain. It's a beautiful, beautiful covenant. Two individuals, one flesh. And I think it's really important to consider as you think about the story of Genesis itself is that uh, of all the things, it was marriage that they took with them out of Eden. Have you ever thought about that? It was, it was marriage—the one thing that they got to bring with them as they were leaving Eden, Eden was, was, was this thing. Marriage is both mysterious and divine, as it still has something of garden goodness attached to it. It still has something of Eden sticking to it. And anybody who has a good marriage, enjoys their their partner, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's nothing like the sweetness of that union. Furthermore, in the book of Ephesians, Jesus, or or, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus himself uses marriage to serve as a symbol of his love and union to the church. The Apostle Paul writing makes the point that marriage serves as a witness or parable of the covenant love between Christ and his church. If you read there at the end of chapter 5, uh, chapter five uh, Paul's saying, uh, It's good for marriage, what I'm talking about, but it's actually teaching us about Christ's relationship to the church. It's telling us that the cross. Is sufficient for salvation, and a marriage that is shaped by the gospel can actually bring clarity to the mystery that is faith, meaning that a marriage rooted in Christ can actually create sort of a kingdom outpost in the world where people can look at your life and, and see Jesus and see the kingdom in it. It's something Eugene Peterson called a colony of heaven in a country of death. I think marriage is families rooted in the gospel, they present that to the world. It may also remind you that John's gospel explains that it was at a wedding where Jesus performed his first miracle, uh, water to wine. And I think it's infinitely profound that it was water into wine, as a marriage saturated in the gospel only gets richer and more full-bodied with age. My I tell you what, if I, if I'm taking a taste of my marriage today, it is definitely more complex than it was in the beginning. (laughs) And of course, the final book of the Bible, Revelation, closes with the wedding celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where Christ and his bride live happily ever after, the covenant, which began in Genesis, is finally completed God's idea of marriage is staggering, and it's beautiful when you put it in a nutshell like that. You see, the canon presents both a theologically rich and stunning perspective around the subject of marriage, and it provides a unique understanding around the idea of covenant. God has a big, beautiful idea around this subject. And according to the text, marriage is perhaps the most profound and mysterious human relationship one can experience on planet Earth. A soul connect that Augustine explained was dissolvable only by death. It's lovely. It's a lovely image. It's beautiful language. And when it's lived out, it's truly extraordinary. The canon And covenant they play beautiful music on the subject of marriage which begs the question then why do over half of those who embrace this union ultimately find it discordant enough that it ends in divorce if it's such beautiful music why does it become discordant enough to dissolve it well culture does give us some clues and i have a i have a page out of uh, Timothy Keller's book that I want to read with you guys this morning because it gives a great understanding around why um, the world sees it differently, doesn't see it in terms of a canon and covenantal uh, perspective. In the meaning of marriage, Tim Keller writes, so where did this pessimism come from and why is it so out of touch with reality? Paradoxically, it may be that the pessimism comes from a new kind of unrealistic idealism about marriage, born of a significant shift in our culture's understanding of the purpose of marriage. Legal scholar John Witt Jr. says that the earlier ideal of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. Uh, Witt points out that in Western civilizations, there have been several competing views of what the form and function of marriage should be. The first two were in the Catholic and Protestant perspectives, Though different in many particulars, they both taught that the purpose of marriage was to create a framework for lifelong devotion and love between a, human, a husband and wife. It was a solemn bond designed to help each party's subordinate individual impulses and interests in favor of the relationship, to be a sacrament of God's love, the Catholic emphasis, and serve the common good, the Protestant emphasis. Marriage created by bringing male and female into a binding partnership In particular, lifelong marriage was seen as creating the only kind of social stability in which children could grow and thrive. The reason that society had a vested interest in the institution of marriage was because children could not flourish as well in any other kind of environment. However, Witt explains that a new view of marriage emerged from the 18th and 19th century enlightenment. Older cultures taught their their members to find meaning and duty by embracing their assigned social roles and carrying them out faithfully. During the enlightenment, things began to shift. The meaning of life came to be seen as the fruit of the freedom of the individual individual to choose the life that most fulfills him or her personally. Instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedom and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. Proponents of this view approach, uh, new approach, did not see the essence of marriage as located in either its divine sacramental symbolism or as a social bond given to benefit the broader human commonwealth. Rather, Marriage was seen as a contract between two parties for mutual individual growth and satisfaction. In this view, married persons married for themselves, not to fulfill responsibilities to God or society. Parties should therefore be allowed to conduct their marriage in any way they deem beneficial to them, and no obligation to church, tradition, or broader community should be imposed on them. In short, the Enlightenment privatized marriage, taking it out of the public sphere and redefined its purpose and individual gratification, not any broader good, such as reflecting God's nature, producing character, or raising children. Slowly but surely, this newer understanding of the meaning of marriage has displaced the older ones in Western culture. What a fascinating uh, history lesson this morning. But it tells you exactly why we are where we are in terms of the topic of marriage. And, in fact, many other things. But in short, what Keller is saying with the help of uh, John Witt, in short, what culture has shifted the focus from, from us to me. It's not about us anymore, it's about me. And that's important to understand why. It's really important to understand why. See, much of life within Western society is viewed through this lens of me and not us. It's a huge problem. Therefore, uh, what we see in terms of marriage is that superficial metrics have replaced sacred solutions around the subject of marriage. I want to say that again. Superficial metrics have replaced sacred solutions around the subject of marriage. But a, a lot of other things. Proverbs 11, um, 22 touches on this very well. I don't have it up there, but I'm going to read it to you. And it's one that John said was so weird and vague that uh, we probably wouldn't co- cover it. And then, of course, I'm going to cover it. Um, Proverbs 11:22 says, uh, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Uh, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Huh? Well, Old Testament scholar Tremper Logman uh, explains. He says, The sage is writing from the perspective of the man, as one looks at a pig and sees only the gold ring. So is a man who is so enamored by a woman's physical beauty that he does not recognize her lack of discretion. The sage is warning those who will listen that the beauty is not worth all the problems that a woman's indiscretion will bring him. Later in the poem concerning the virtuous woman, the sage will affirm that what is really important is not charm or beauty, but rather a woman's fear of Yahweh. Beauty without wisdom is the height of incongruity. And this shallow way of selecting a partner is not exclusive to men. How many of you recall years back that uh, little, little cultural phenomena of the hot Felon. Yeah. Okay. You remember? You remember? Okay. Hot felon. Two people. So I have to tell you about this guy, Jeremy Ray Minks. According to Wikipedia, was arrested in 2014 during a gang sweep called Operation Ceasefire in Stockton, California. After which, police posted his mugshot on Facebook, which went viral due to his appearance. He was convicted on federal charges of being a felon in possession of a firearm and grand theft. Uh, Meeks' mugshot was noticed by modeling agencies, and upon his release from Mendota Federal Correctional Institution in March 2016, he began his modeling career. It was an interesting cultural phenomenon, as countless women took to Twitter to thirst after this guy. And, the, when, I, and, and when I say thirst, guys, they, it means to the, us older generation, it means they thought he's really attractive. Like, that's what the thirst is. That's what the kids say. Um, so they took to Twitter to thirst after Jeremy Meeks. And listen to this. Within 48 hours of being posted, of this being posted, the photo gained over 56,000 likes and 16,400 comments with people who are obsessing over his attractiveness. Looking at the gold instead of the pig, you know? And I'm not saying that a guy can't change, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but, a, but a couple of the nuttiest comments that came out of Twitter I thought you might find interesting. Because it's because here's one O M G G G super delicious, um, and uh, and, a, and a quote Can we be handcuffed together? <laughs> Enamored by the gold and forgetting by what it's surrounded by. That is our culture. Our culture is focused on the gold and forgetting what it's surrounded by. Uh, Integrity, character, those things are not primary in the way Western society views things. Not just marriage, but, but just about everything. Men and women, we are all attracted to the proverbial gold. It's a natural thing. It's a natural thing to see natural beauty. Beauty, intelligence, success, security, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it is, you fill in the blank there. But character and integrity ought to be pri- our primary factor when choosing a partner. It has to be. For a Christian considering a partner, the criteria ought to be does this person actually love Christ? For a Christian, it ought, it ought, it's got to be simple. Does this person love Christ? If they're a Christian, do they really love Christ? Not necessarily what is their doctrine, although doctrine is important, but do they actually truly love Jesus? Not just a Christian in name, Christian in tradition, but an actual lover of Christ. Are they compelled and smitten by the gospel? And that is discernible. It is a discernible th- to understand when you, when you get to know a person. It's easy to know whether someone has a surface understanding, a shallow understanding of Christ, and whether or not they have a deep love and affection. And I don't mean, again, able to express the deepest of doctrines. I mean just an affection smitten with Jesus, awed and, and staggered by the, the blood that again, cascades down the cross to convey the hested love of God to us. Are we in love and infatuated with this man, this God? Are we staggered by that? That's what we ought to be looking for. So it's nice, the attractiveness, the intelligence, et cetera, et cetera, but does the Christian love Christ? Novel idea, right? Novel idea. The gospel has to be the glue we use to forge our marriages together because beauty and intelligence will fade. I'm sorry I t- tell Beth that, that, that all my, my beauty is, is fading. <laughs> it just is. It is. I said, it is, babe. This is what you're getting now. I'm sorry. Um, success and security can re- be removed. And... And what I have found in my marriage is it can also not suffice when you lose something that you can't actually buy back. You know, you guys know for us going through grief, losing my son, it changes your marriage. It changes everything. It changes your home. It changes the air that is floating through it. It changes all that. Um, Things change. In other words, in marriage, circumstances will inevitably change. And guess what? Not only will the circumstances change, so will we along the way. I'm not just aging, but I'm actually developing as a human being. We're growing. We're 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 um, we're learning new things. We're we're chasing new ideas. We're we're uh, abandoning some, and we're becoming hopefully more fuller, well developed, you know you know more well rounded people, hopefully. But we are changing. As our old friend Stanley Hauerwas, and I miss quoting Hauerwas, but uh, we have a good quote from him today. As our old friend Stanley says, he says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are uh, primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone right for us to marry, and then, if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. This is one of the jokes that I have with my wife. Is uh, twenty We're going on 26 years. I have a wonderful marriage, but she is a different person. She cries so much more than she ever did. Um, and that part, partially is of, because of grief, but even before that, she was crying a whole lot more. And I said what's going on here i said i I feel like i got sold a a bill of you know false goods here because when we first met you were just like this strong uh you know kind of stoic woman that i didn't have to worry about all your emotions and then now now you're like now you're expressing them but you're expressing them decades later this is really a bait and switch type of thing but again, my wife is growing and developing and becoming a more well-rounded person. And I'm having to learn to become one myself as she teaches me, as I'm even being guided in that by her. And that's the beauty of marriage is that we're, we're hopefully changing for the for good and for better, because if Christians love Christ, then that's ultimately, inevitably, what God's going to be doing in your life. He's going to be making you sweeter. He's going to make you kinder, uh, make you more patient, more understanding. And and if you're married, that's the primary place where that's going to be happening. It's going to be happening in that place. And we have to understand that that as life and our spouses change if marriage is about me and it's not about we not the canon not the covenant the dissolution of it becomes a very real option and that's the current problem that we have in our culture today i mean i was i was racking my brain today or this week about where do we go with a sermon on marriage because there's so many different places but really it starts there it starts with just our understanding of the canon the covenant Um, where our current culture uh, places us in today, and how do we respond to it, and how do we live within it? And now I know this, this subject is very sensitive because we are in a room with people who have been divorced for right and wrong reasons. And perhaps some of you don't even know whether or not you were right or wrong in that process. All I want to say to you this morning is that we're here to talk And remember, there is always grace available for all of it. Grace is bigger. It has always proven to be bigger than I'll ever understand. Not even from a knowledge standpoint, but an actual practical standpoint. There is more grace available than I can ever understand. And so if you're out there and you're wondering and you have angst and anxiety, talk to us. Talk to an elder. Um, We'd love to walk you with you and through it and, and, and know that grace is sufficient for you, sufficient for us. For those uh, who are potentially choosing a partner or uh, now, or perhaps in the future, all I can say to you is remember Jesus. I know some of you are thinking like, I want to be married. I want to, I want to do this. But all I can tell you is remember Jesus in every single step of that process. In fact, this is one of my favorite joys of pastoral ministry is walking with people on their journey to that sacred day where you step into a covenant relationship because those steps are so important. And if—and if not, if those steps aren't walked, it's very off— it's very easy to miss some of the obvious things along that journey. So, um, if you're potentially choosing a partner now or in the future, remember Jesus, not the hot felon, not the gold, you know? Nothing wrong with natural beauty, natural success, whatever it is that attracts you to that individual. But once you get beyond that step, what, what is the whole of that, that person? And it must be Christ. It must be Jesus. And for those of you, maybe your marriage is more like the trenches. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you feel like you're, you're, a, you're at the Battle of Bastion. Um, that was World War II. It was the longest battle the Allied forces ever had, and the Americans were dug in into uh, foxholes for, for an entire winter. It was, hor- it, it was horrible. Perhaps you were, your marriage feels like you're in the trenches. All I can say is, remember Jesus. Jesus shows us that no matter where you are at, no matter what has happened, no matter how difficult it can be, Jesus shows you a beautiful perspective and a path of grace that can ultimately lead you um, to flourishing, to even a victory in a battle won. So so if, if, if all you feel right now today as we talk about marriage is shrapnel, you're like, I'm bleeding, I'm, you know, I, I, I feel like an a, a old, grizzled veteran warrior, um, let me just tell you that Jesus can bring you out of those trenches. And also, if you're single, remember that Paul writes that there's great blessing and advantage to one who is truly committed to Christ Truly married to Christ. I believe that wholeheartedly. Everything that I preach from the word of God, I believe wholeheartedly. And so just some people might think I'm just tossing singles on there to throw them a bone, but that is not true. We're talking about marriage today. So we're talking about marriage. But for singles, Paul writes, there's a great blessing for one who, and an advantage and freedom of one who is truly content in Christ. And sometimes that's difficult to remember, but all I can say is, to that person, to that individual, remember Jesus. Just continue to remember Jesus. And the lesson, the lesson I guess we learn here today is that the path to blessing, or ball and chain, is not a foolproof thing. But we can mitigate much pain if we actually love Jesus Christ, his way, and choose a partner based upon this criteria. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your Word and what it speaks into our lives as we consider the uh, topic of marriage. God, we pray for wisdom for all of us that we might um, love You and understand our marriage to You. And out of that overflow, out of that understanding, help us to love, if we are married, to love our partners well. And if we're, if, if we're not, we're somewhere in between uh, all of that. May we just continue to find our rest, comfort, and care, um, our certainty in our relationship with you. Jesus, I, I ask for um, more grace for us than we never understand in our understanding of, of your love for us and how that impacts humanity around us. Um, On a personal note, Jesus, thank you for my wife, all that she uh, has uh, been patient with over the years, and that uh, you have given me uh, heaven on earth. Thank you. Amen.